Hey, Will I Like It listeners, do you like a good cup of coffee, one that's rich, flavorful, and ethically sourced? Then you need to check out Dynasty of Coffee, a Yorkshire-based online coffee business that offers a range of expertly crafted blends. All of their coffee is roasted to order to ensure freshness, and they're committed to nurturing the well-being of both individuals and the planet. Whether you're a fan of a bold, strong coffee or a smooth and mellow one, Dynasty of Coffee has a blend for you. Their four main blends are inspired by different British dynasties, Saxon, Viking, Tudor, and a decaf Hanoverian. So if you're looking for a delicious and ethically sourced cup of coffee, head to dynastyofcoffee.co.uk today and use the code SAXON10, that's SAXON, all capital letters, 10, at checkout for 10% off your first order. Enjoy! Hello, welcome back to the Will I Viking podcast. I'm your host, Craig Brooks. And today I'm joined by the leading Viking archaeologist in food, Daniel Serra. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, that's nice being here. And yeah. After a few technical issues, we finally yeah. got going. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you kind of... You call yourself a culinary archaeologist, so I think it's probably a good place to start is to explain what that is. Yeah, I mean, archaeologists usually tend to look at, well, we go back to archaeology and food. Most archaeologists yeah. want to look at food, look at the sort of what what, uh, what finds you have, what was the diet? And they sort of stop at the level of diet. So they were eating mainly this kind of uh, grain or they had mainly marine or uh, land-based uh, diet. But uh, it doesn't really go further than that. If you look yeah. at most archaeological conclusions and the summaries, what I want to look at is to reconstruct the food as a, uh, as a food culture, the tastes, the com composition of food, yeah. which is, of course, a bit more uh, speculative than sure. just saying that 70% yeah. of all the grains were barley. Mm. So yeah, I have to go a bit further, and I usually try to divide how we present the food in sort of four categories. So you have the first would be the sort of positive evidence, that the one that museums and archaeological reports usually tend to present, saying that yeah. we found this on this site. We found <clears throat> these uh, seeds, and uh, these, <clears throat> sorry. And we found these uh, bones, we found bones of uh, cattle, sheep, goat, pork in this uh, combination. Then you have yeah. the sort of probable uh, level. That's what I'm coming in. I'm looking at the evidence and try to reconstruct how could this have been cooked? Uh, what is the probable uh, combination between ingredients, cooking equipment, and cultural context? Yeah. Then the next level will be sort of uh, possible. What you would find perhaps more often in the reenactments, sort of a good guess, but it's uh, you don't take it all the way of uh, trying to see if it works, experimental ideology, used ingredients, but in a way that sort of fits your modern mind. Yeah. And then you have the fourth level would be sort of uh, positive thinking or uh, fantasy. 
where you, <laughs> where people, I guess you've encountered it as well, sort of people say, well, they had to meat, they could ground it up, they could put it between two pieces of bread with some, uh, and you could have a hamburger, or which I actually have encountered even at the museum. Well, they have, yeah. uh, they made of flatbreads and they could put something on the top. And, you got your pizza. <laughs> and uh, people yeah. sort of wiping pizza because that's a recognizable or something they want to, uh, an end result they want to get to. Yeah. Do you know, I, I recorded with someone else a while back, a friend of mine, and we lost the episode, unfortunately, but we yeah. kind of discussed that and we made Viking pasta. Yeah. <laughs> so just to just to say, where did you draw that line? Yes, exactly. So that's yeah. uh, so I think the line has to be drawn at what the cultural context would be like. Sure. So even if you have the all the equipment, all the ingredients for something, some things are just not sort of conceived of. Mm. And that, I would say, is a difference between the sort of positive thinking, the sort of fantasy, and the idea of yeah. what was possible than was probable. Yeah. Another way of this fantasy thing is um, people really want to have some ingredients like potatoes. Well, they went to the Americas. Some might have brought back and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You encounter that, especially in forums and uh, people discussing off uh, lectures or stuff. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So what was it that made you kind of want to go down that route rather than sort of traditional archaeology and go down the well, more experimental? I would say a love of food to start with. So yeah. I was interested in food. And uh, when I was a student, I was curious to what did people eat? Because, well, I liked eating. Uh, I like good food. And so when I was a student, I was looking into, well, what did the people eat at the uh, time I was studying? I started doing classic archaeology and, uh, of course, went down looking at Apicius and uh, the Roman recipes, which is, we have, we have recipes. And I made some, uh, did some yeah. medieval archaeology, looked at medieval recipes, where recipes survive. And then I had a chance to start on my PhD. And uh, the opening was in Viking Age or prehistoric uh, era, so I could choose something in the prehistoric, and it was Viking Age. And uh, then I didn't have the recipes. So at that point, I was going uh, much more into the experimental archaeology point of view, but still mm. with my idea of what were people eating, not just uh, what was the diet. So they, And to look into what people were eating as a as food stuff, as uh, dishes rather than just uh, diet, it's really good way of uh, disseminating uh, archaeology to sort of have people experiencing the past and get yeah. them, get them a living idea of what would it have taste like, what would life have been like. They can also talk, have it as talking points for looking in, into ideologies and uh, religion or mm. societal contexts. So that's more or less how it got started, and then it's sort of the rabbit hole never ended. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. It's yeah. kind of, I mean, I don't know if you know, I'm actually a painter and decorator for a living. Um, and I'm just a reenactor as a hobbyist, yeah. um, and it has sort of gradually spiraled, um, yeah. and it's become like a small business for me now. It's uh, starting to take over a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And it's a similar story. I mean, I'm not, as a, I didn't do the sort of university archaeology route. Um, but it's just started with that 
sort of love of food and then once I got into the Viking era that was that was the way I went with it so yeah I remember meeting at the Midgård's Blot just before we it started. did yeah. yes that would be pre pre-covid so that's yeah I reckon 2018 probably yeah five years ago yes yeah that's right yeah there's been a few workshops there 2018 or 2019 or 2017, 2017 could have been even 2017, 2019. It could have been. I was there. I was there 2017 as well, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. You gave a talk on, um, on yeah, Viking Age food in the uh, museum. Yes. Well, I'm not sure if it was yeah. 17. <laughs> yeah, I, I it was a while ago. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I kind of thought we might discuss exactly how you then go about your approach to recreating food so as you said already we don't have any recipes or not much no, so, to go on so, so how, yeah, what's so your I, approach to the so as you said it's experimental archaeology is sort of the main yeah. point but i i do start well and this is uh, i recently did a talk on this and so i usually start off with looking at what are the finds what are the finds of uh, sort of ingredients and what mm. are the finds of cooking equipment this is still very vague and it's sort of yeah. like emptying out the cookbook. Uh, if you take the cookbook and just get everything, every recipe is out and you just put down uh, all the different cooking methods, all the different uh, ingredients, and you can recreate it, sort of re-spin it any way you want. So my first yeah. point is sort of looking in, into, well, how does the ingredients work with the cooking equipment? So I try out a stone, uh, sort of soapstone vessel, See how how does thing cook in that? How does thing cook in the large metal pot? The spits then being used. Well, how do they work with different kind of meats or different yeah. chunks? And just to get an idea. So this is my sort of first uh, experiment. And I usually say that I'm doing experimental archaeology and experiential archaeology because I not everything is uh, sort of uh, scientifically. Uh, provable but yeah, i get yeah. some ideas from doing things repeatedly as well mm. so this is my first start and uh, from there i can build a kind of a first hypothesis yeah uh, so this works with this this works with this and I, then i do an, another trial based on those ideas then the next part will be looking into contemporary and near contemporary sources for instance you look into the sagas sometimes the sagas will have uh, a small phrase, well, most sagas are written down in the medieval period, mm. but uh, we assume that many of them are based on oral tradition. So sometimes in the sagas you can find uh, that the food has sort of a central place, and yeah. it has probably more like uh, more likely to have been uh, based on the oral tradition because you build the saga around this food uh, item. Whereas in other places, it's just there to sort of illustrate the feast hall. And then it might be less uh, relevant uh, in the sort of the oral context. It's just something that you can fit for the for your audience. Yeah. yeah. So you have to uh, have this uh, thing going on, thinking of uh, looking into when, what, what is the relevance of this for the story? Yeah. And something I, and this is, of course, this is, will be my interpretation of it. And then yeah. I look into medieval sources to looking into how are they using the equipment? 
because even though the recipes have changed quite a bit, you have different ingredients, a different way of thinking, a different context of cooking. The way of using a iron pot or ceramic vessels will not have changed that much because the technique is the same. Yeah. So for instance, what I find when I'm looking into medieval cookbooks is that almost every recipe, at least the Scandinavian ones, say that you simmer the meat, will not boil the meat. And that uh, sort of changes the way we're thinking as well. Mm. So you have this uh, kind of, all right, I've actually forgot one step that will be in the beginning. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> sorry for being a bit... Uh, no, that's fine. Yeah, so before you do all this, and we'll get back to this with the text sources, before you do yeah. all this, you have to sort of uh, readjust a bit of your thinking because you're, all of us are modern people. We uh, live in a modern context. So you have to sort of scale off. It's not just about the ingredients and cooking method. You have to scale off mm. some of the ways we're thinking of food today. So I usually go back and sort of uh, take away all the innovations, the sort of uh, culinary innovations we ever had that deeply impact how we cook food. For instance, yeah. mid 20th century, we get or even early 20th century, we get the fridge and cooling techniques. That uh, influences how you store things, when you can eat things. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we eat fresh meat, we have uh, vegetables all around here. So the combination is completely different. Yeah. So scale that way, you will once again be back to preservation. You will have dried uh, vegetables, stored vegetables. The meat will have to be salted or uh, stored, dried made in ways that can keep. Mid mm. 19th century, we got uh, cheap cast iron. That changes also. We get the uh, iron stove, Yeah. Uh, which changes how you cook. If you cook from that, uh, go from an open fire to cook on an iron stove, that will change quite it's a bit. It's very different, yeah. It's, yeah. Very, it's a very different way of cooking. And lots of cookbooks mm. came out talking about how you should do things. The ovens of the uh, iron stove is completely different from the older uh, wood fueled ovens. So mm. it will change completely. Another thing that happened in that same period is uh, with cast iron uh, is uh, frying pans. Frying pan uh, in, uh, med in medieval Viking Age context is quite an expensive yeah. tool. Yeah, I've uh, got one somewhere here, I think. Yeah, there's one yeah. just next to me here. Look. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, that will be really hard work of making. If it's yeah. hot iron, it becomes considerably cheaper. And yeah. that, of course, uh, influence. And today, I mean, look at, at least in European cooking, mm. we fry quite a lot of things. So if you scale that away, you will have a different way of preparing the food as well. And then uh, another innovation that influences a lot is by the 17th century, 16th, 17th century, the fork. Yeah. Remove the fork and you will have to eat in a different way. So when you have a fork mm. and a knife and as we eat as we do today, you get this large piece of uh, meat or whatever you have this main. You will, if you take that away, you will have to cut up everything into morsels that you can 
take up with a spoon or fingers. You will not be cutting things up on your plate. It'd That's certainly also, be difficult. <laughs> yes, and it's also the, yeah. the is how you cook things, how you prepare the food. You prepare with yeah. that in mind. Yeah. So these are just a few. There are uh, plenty of other sort of innovations or uh, changes as well. Sugar, how you plate and serve things, uh, new ingredients, uh, new mm. thinking about food uh, that sort of turns up in the mid 18th century. So th there's lots of things changing and you have to sort of yeah. step back from each of these changes and try to uh, sort of demodernize you. Yeah, yeah. And so then uh, that is a starting point before I can start even doing the experiments. So I have to have these in, this in mind. Or, all right, I have to cook in yeah. this context. Uh, so that's influences a lot. But back mm. to the uh, written sources. So yeah. I go to the medieval sources, look how they use things. Then I look into also contemporary uh, continental sources. We have some, uh, we have a Frankish cookbook. We have... Uh, Definitely, we have uh, some uh, me uh, medical sources from uh, Anglo-Saxon Anglo-Saxon origin, mm. uh, where you can see. Uh, and some of these uh, sort of recipes for medical purposes are very much like uh, cooking equipment, uh, cooking uh, recipes. So I yeah. use some uh, inspiration from that as well. So then, when I've done my sort of settled on how I'm going to use the technique with the ingredients. Then I look into the resources and reassess, do new, a new hypothesis, and then try it out. And so I'll use the techniques as they are described in the medieval sources. I'll try to look into combinations that are perhaps not obvious to us, but could be found in the Viking sagas or in the Anglo-Saxon medical uh, records. And then I'll taste it and go with another hypothesis, always on the lookout for new ingredients uh, found in archaeological excavations or a new context for, uh, for instance, for how oven would have been used or... So there's always, so I say it's a never ending experimental loop. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because like I think like the idea of a cookbook to someone at the time as well just wouldn't make any sense because it no. involves you getting certain ingredients to make that dish, whereas they would use certain things that they've got available and the cooking techniques that they know. Yes, well, I mean, so, it's, it's not well. I mean, if you look at continental, you would have a Frankish, you have a cookbook in the Frankish context, but it, was, it is a mm. medical source. But so they are, but they are really not written in the same way. It's not uh, described in the same way. As we do today, yeah. it's it's more like uh, use that and that, cook it and uh, serve it. Yeah, quite vague, very vague, and uh, yeah. so you're supposed to have some experience doing this. Mm. But yeah, so but I think the cultural context is very important as well because even if something is made in Frankish uh, France or in ancient Rome doesn't mean that it was made up in Scandinavia. So you have to have that as a sort of uh, filter. Hmm. So because I often uh, encounter this idea, that, well, but the Romans did this. 
So wouldn't it been possible for the Vikings to have, well, it's possible, but it's not really, uh, we don't have the context. One of these issues that I'm quite often is in a sort of argument about is spices. Spices have been found in Europe. It's, uh, I think it's found as far north as uh, Cologne, uh, mm. Cologne uh, in the uh, 1050s. Uh, by traders saw that they were importing exotic spices as far north yeah. as that. You have it in ancient Rome. So it was in Europe, but we don't have any finds of it in Scandinavia. And it's, uh, it's one of those things that yeah, I think you really have to start it using the culture for it being uh, sort of uh, being entering the idea of uh, the culinary world. Mm. So it's not until we're, in my my opinion, based on what I can see on the finds and text uh, sort of context, it's not until the medieval period when we're sort of when Scandinavia becomes part of Europe and you get the European food culture, which in turn have gotten its food culture inspired by the Middle East, uh, but through Spain. So you have, and also ancient Rome, but you have these kind of uh, steps where you have to include the sort of mental uh, context. Where are you? Where, where, who do you belong to? Before yeah. you start yeah. adding some, something new and expensive like that. So I see a few museums using exotic spices. I see quite a few reenactors using exotic spices uh, in the recreations. For instance, black pepper is uh, the most common, of course, because that's quite mm. common. And that's also an, uh, sort of that's a bit of a, a difficult step to make things taste good without using the spices and uh, herbs we are used to. Salt is another question that's sort of what how much salt do they use? Were they using salt yeah. as a condiment? And uh, if, a preservative. Yes, and if not, yeah. we, how will it taste using it just for the preservative, using just the salted meat or the salted butter? Can mm. we adjust the food to taste well, well to our taste buds anyway? Yeah, no, I think uh, particularly with my first book, I did overuse certain things and it was a sort of lack of experience at the time. There's certain things I would do differently now. And one is yep. that there is there is pepper in quite a few of the dishes. The only reason that I've never gone back and changed it is because then you get two different versions of the same book. Yep. And it's not fair on people to have two different versions sort of to compare. And I figure something like pepper, if you don't want to use it, it's quite easy for someone to say they shouldn't have pepper and take it out. And it's still yeah. the, most of the dishes still work. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's something I don't use as frequently when we're, we're at reenactment events and I'm doing cookery courses. I tend to steer clear of a lot of spices and stuff that maybe I would have used originally. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you can look into what herbs would have been giving a similar experience as I can use a bit of uh, mustard seeds to get mm. the sort of peppery taste. If that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Then, of course, we're still at a loss because uh, there could be taste combination that we can't really imagine because they're so different from ours. Yeah. For instance, I've do, done some medieval, I do quite a lot of medieval cooking as well. 
and in the so Danish is the Danish medieval cookbook, which I did a Swedish translation of and uh, interpretations of. And there's a dish mm -hmm. using uh, it's a chicken dish using quite a lot of sugar. So it's uh, you should take one fourth uh, sugar to the amount of uh, chicken meat, which to our uh, taste bud will taste really strange. Yeah. But the so question is, do we do something? Is there something wrong in the recipes? Is there something wrong in the interpretation? Or is there something that has changed uh, considerably when we, the, our creation yeah. uh, of sweetness? It could go either way, couldn't it? Because even with modern cookbooks, you get things that are written wrong. The quantities yeah. are slightly off. So yeah. it could be a mistake. It could be something that that was what they ate. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Uh, so you have to look into that as well. So we can't. So, of course, and I will be honest with this, all my interpretations are in the end based on my own preferences. Mm. I mean, it, is, it will influence how I do my interpretations. Yeah. No, it would have to, wouldn't it? Yes. Although I yeah. have stepped above it sometimes. I mean, for instance, I was not too fond of uh, intestines, uh, heart, liver, etc., when starting uh, my cookbook. Uh, mm. And now I actually find the uh, recipe for the heart one of my favorites. Yeah, we do like cooking hearts. Yes, that always goes down well. Yeah, we've we've tried all sorts, and yeah, certain things are not very palatable, shall we say? <laughs> when you go down the roads of things like tripe and like your yeah. brains and that cut, yeah. But then. then but it, I, it, it, could be a question of uh, what we're used to, but also a question of not really, if, since we're not using it, not really using, knowing how to cook it for, for the best effect. Sure, yeah. And I think um, you were saying sort of about different locations and sort of the cultural context yes. of the food itself. I mean, like with the Vikings, am I right? I think, so they, there's a lot of finds of oysters in uh, the UK. Yeah. Places like York and Shaftesbury Abbey, they were eaten in large numbers. But I think in Scandinavia, they they don't really eat them, do they? Yeah, there's uh, almost nothing. Yeah. Oysters, yeah. shellfish. So there seemed to be an aversion to that. Hmm. Which and, is strange, isn't it? And what, what might have influenced them when they came, I guess, would be the culture that was yeah. in Britain at the time. Yes, I think it's, I mean, uh, it would be a bit like today if you... Consider that you would have some food that are considered quite poor, uh, food that you consider to be sort of uh, something you eat just when sort of uh, when you don't have anything else. Needs must. Yeah. yeah. Uh, compared to if you travel somewhere where it is uh, served as delicacy. So, in uh, yeah. in England and also Ireland, I think we have quite a lot of uh, shellfish, even at Viking mm. side. You would have uh, a different tradition in England, definitely, and York, definitely, based on the Roman uh, use of uh, shellfish, where it was. Yeah. In Scandinavia, and this is my interpretation or in hypothesis. Yeah. Is that uh, shellfish is considered the same way as gathering fruit in uh, Britain, uh, fruit and nuts, where it's considered a bit of the, on the low end, sort of something you do when you starve. Mm, yeah, and you would have, uh, I mean, you would have that both in England and in Scandinavia with 
oysters, uh, fruits, that's something that perhaps happened in uh, like a few hundred years early when you have this uh, miss, uh, uh, sort of, you have the harsh environment and a lot of things uh, doesn't grow. You have this harsh winter and it's, yeah. uh, I think it's a volcanic, uh, volcanic eruption somewhere that causes uh, the temperature to drop quite a bit for a mm. year. And you will have, uh, all over Europe, you have uh, examples of famine. And what you do in famine is that you start gathering things and it could have lived on as a sort of, not taboo, but a way of thinking of that this survival food. Yeah, yeah. That is the most plausible uh, reason, because if you look back into the Stone Age, oysters were really popular in Scandinavia. Have the uh, kitchen middens from Denmark, which are mounds, mm. mounds of uh, oysters. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, and it also, I mean, they're quite expensive today. So to think yeah. of them as a poor man's food is uh, shows how different the cultures are between the then and now. Yeah, but we are yeah. uh, lots of things that will change uh, during time. What kind of uh, sort of value we put into it? Lobsters, uh, oysters, salmon. I and cooked lobster was... yesterday at an event, funnily enough. Yeah. It was, I mean, <laughs> yeah. In the 19th century, it was considered, uh, at least in America, it was considered really cheap food. It was, uh, mm. I think, well, I read somewhere that it was sort of uh, brought in too much of it, so they had to sort of put it down in the ground as fertilizer. Yeah. Salmon, uh, which has well, it's, uh, gone down again, but I mean, it was quite fancy food for a, while, for a bit. In mm. the uh, medieval, in the medieval Scandinavia, it was stipulated in some places that the farmers should not be fed salmon more than certain months, uh, certain days of the t of the week, because it was cheap in uh, some areas, and they fed the sort of right, yeah. So they have a contract saying, well, we will not, uh, we don't not want to eat salmon all the days of the week. We need something else. Mm. So, so yes, so the value of food will change with the context. Yeah. Yeah. That's also, what do you eat? What is food, even? And it's also a thing that we have to consider, reconsider. Is this considered food or not? Yeah. Because everything that's edible is not considered food in all cultures. So, yeah, I, I had a couple of other things I thought um, I would sort of maybe discuss with you, pick your brains, I guess, would be the yeah. best way to put it. So what I was watching, you sent me a link uh, when we first discussed it in the chat to your video you did with the BBC. Yeah. And you had that really nice looking fish dish, which I am going to try. I've bought some fish heads. Yeah, good. I, I could only get frozen. I couldn't oh, get dried. So You should uh, look out in uh, sort of West African shops. Uh, that... I'm not sure whether we've got any around this yes. way. Well, we're well, not perhaps yeah. not in your area, but uh, if you yeah. get to London or somewhere, one of the larger towns, we have a minority of uh, from West Africa. You should definitely yeah. get hold of that. Be able to get hold yeah. of that. But as a side note to that video, yeah. I noticed and uh, at the location you were filming, they had a Mastermeyer grill hanging up behind you yeah. in one of the shots. And I wondered what your opinion was on that as a cooking utensil. I don't think so. Uh, it's, you don't? No, because it's... So it's unique. It's just one. 
of them. Yeah. Uh, and I don't really think it's uh, cooking equipment. It's uh, it's it's been used today. I mean, reenactors use it all the time as cooking. Uh, I I use one myself. I've got one. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I yeah. don't think it's uh, really. It's uh, it may be for some other purposes, but I mm. don't really see it as a cooking equipment. Uh, yeah, we've tried it off with various different dif uh, different dishes and things that you can cook on there, and you can quite happily sit, um, you know, like flat bottom clay pots like this one. Yeah, sit quite well on top of it. It but, takes some getting used to because it also spins as you... <laughs> yes, I mean, it's not uh, really... I mean, it's a, an expensive piece of uh, material. Yeah. To use it for, uh, like, flat-bottom uh, ceramic vessels, which are usually fine and put them in the earth, gather yeah. their embers around. So it doesn't really make sense to have some have a spinning uh, device to put the pot, pots on. Yeah. Really, it's... Also, it's not really what I can see is part of. Uh, well, you don't really. You have to. There's a bit of a stretch to think that the people were using it as a barbecue. Mm. Uh, you do have some fish in medieval sources being put on uh, on grills. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, I'm not too convinced that it is uh, cooking equipment. No, I think the the lead idea is that it's probably some kind of lighting. Yeah. So you sort of hang it up in the in the rafters. Yeah. And yeah. Put, uh, put uh, embers on top or something. Yeah. I guess that has to be tried as well because there will be a lot of things falling off. But if you. Yeah. It's yeah, it's going to depend on what. If you had a compacted earth floor, I guess that would be safe. Yes. But yeah, you wouldn't do it in a wooden floored building or something. Anyway, it would be. An expensive equipment we can uh, yeah. cook that it would be rather expensive if you ask uh viking h smith to make that thing they're quite expensive today so yeah. <laughs> i think yeah so to get one back then would uh certainly be expensive yes yeah, so it's not being used mm. for everyday purposes and then the question yeah. is what would be in the purpose be mm. yeah it's another one of those kind of strange mysteries isn't it Yes. You got that one yeah. find. Was it the only one that was ever made? We don't. Exactly. Yeah. So, so until I find something else in a more of a cooking context, I will not mm. use it in the cooking reconstructions. Mm. That's. Yeah, because I think the, there, there were some cooking pots in with. There, the there's some uh, bottoms from the frying pans. That's, uh, I think that's what's fine in the Mestimeter. There's no cooking mm. pot for this. Uh, I think there's, I'm not sure if there's a whole cooking uh, frying pan, but there's uh, sort of the round part of the cooking uh, of the frying pan. I think there's a, there's a couple, and I think some are yeah. parts that are probably, I think they believe they would have been kept for scrap for reusing yeah. for something else. And I, I think there was at least one that was intact. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So yeah. That's what you have for cooking equipment. And of mm. course, that's the Smith's uh, equipment or, yeah. So, yeah. that, so that's the context of cooking in the Mestimir find. Yeah. But the problem is, it's Mestimir find, so it could be really anything because it's a craftsman's chest. Yeah. And reusing, using things. Uh, well, very, very difficult to. Yeah. Do. 
I mean, it could have just been an experiment. He could have been like the prototype for something, but yeah, that was lost. It's quite an expensive thing to lose, especially with everything else that's in that find as well. The whole chest is expensive to lose. I don't think it's just Mm. lost, like forgotten to where it is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just checking what the time is because I know you've got other things to be doing today. So we should speed along. I was briefly going to say to you that because we, we've chatted on my page a couple of times about this um, Bronze Age Brunost, potentially, uh, or that that I think is Brunost. So it's the pot with the burned the burned milk. Yes. Um, and I was just going to say to you whilst we were chatting, um, I did an experiment with a guy. So he made me a pot which I've got here, um, and we did try it and see what would happen. Um, and the first experiment, it kind of worked. But we realized we heated the milk too or the way too quickly. Yeah, all right. Um, and so we ended up with a burned pot, a lot like the find. Yeah. Um, and I know you, one of the things you mentioned to me was I needed to monitor the wood use, yeah. which obviously you do use a lot of wood because it takes hours. A little pot like this gets you a tiny blob of Brunost and takes a day or so to, to boil away. Yeah. Um, but I then at a later date at an event, I only put it by the fire when I was cooking other things. So it was on, off, on, off. Um, and it, over a period of a couple of days, I managed to do it without burning it, and I made Brunos. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. It was just uh, an experiment, just to see if I could. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I still think it's unlikely uh, because of mm. the sort of amount of time needed that uh, you would have put the milk to better use. And uh, yeah. especially, as I said, the well, you, yeah. if you can do it uh, on the side, that's good. And that's uh, since you so heat out everything from it, it probably will not go bad because it's just uh, sugar being left. But still, yeah. I, I find it's a bit unlikely. I think that you would use the yeah. milk, the salt milk, or the whey in this case, for, in better uses. So I think it's rather. Yeah. Uh, I think the evidence you have. From uh, your first experiment, it's more conclusive mm. with the uh, with the find, which is it was a mistake of making something else. For instance, if you heat it up for making uh, making cheese or making something, yeah, I and then burn it on. Yes, and then yes, mm. because that happens. It does, and we actually, funnily enough, we found that when it was in the fire, it started to boil over. And yeah. when we took it out of the fire, because of the residual heat in the clay, it just kept going. Yes. And it was just sat on the ground, boiling over like a volcano. So, yeah, so you lose things yeah. as well. That, that so you lost a fair amount of content, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to do it re- very slowly and monitor it in that way. You have to make sure that it doesn't get too heated. But mm. warm enough for it to evaporate or... Yeah. So, yeah. Perhaps you... And if... And this is, uh, was the, I don't recall exactly the find, but was the pot a bit like the one you got here? Similar, yeah. Yeah, it was an intact pot. Um, yeah. I can't remember exactly where, but it was in Denmark. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, and it's, it's, it was cow, yeah. uh, cow fat yeah. resin, I think, because on there. If you want to do it, uh, if you want to make, well, this is my guess. No, we just mm. from now, so I haven't anything to base it on. But if you want to yeah. sort of evaporate, uh, reduce it, mm. you would like to have a pot with it, which is not curved inwards. 
because a pot shaped like that, yeah, you will have uh, some, uh, quite a lot of the evaporation going back into the pot. It will take longer right. time. Yeah. So you need so, something with straighter, straighter, uh, or even straighter uh, so, uh, edge yeah. outwards, not rather than inwards. Yeah, I have got a couple of others actually that would probably be closer to that. But because they're modern replicas, they're also glazed inside. I was yeah. trying to avoid using one that had a glazing on it, yeah. and which is why we went for that one. Yeah, and when you did the, mm. so the pot, would you, was it, how did it stick when you made it, uh, when it worked? So, I mean, if it's, you got porous uh, yeah. pottery. I mean, So it a, didn't, it didn't actually burn on the second occasion. I managed to do it without that, any burning. Yeah. But still, I mean, it would sort of, stick to the all the, the inside i guess the, the residue it does and funnily enough so the especially the first time when it burned on we were convinced initially that we'd wrecked the pot and that was the end of the yeah. pot so we left it and the next day we put some water in there which we gently heated and when we emptied it out it came out almost clean again oh, even exactly. with the burned residue on it which i was quite surprised because it's unglazed it had no you know surface protection on there mm. but it still okay. managed to clean up that I've been able to use it again anyway. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So, and uh, how much did you get from uh, sort of just being curious now? From how mm. uh, how much weight did you use and how much uh, uh, how I mean, much of a job did you get? So, this pot was full to the top. Yeah. And I probably, I mean, it was a tiny little, yeah. little blob at the end. It wasn't a lot. It was sweet. Uh, it almost, have you tried the um, Marmite before? Yeah, once. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of those love it or hate it things. <laughs> yeah. Particularly the first one when we burned a considerable amount of oh, the pot. Please. It came out with a kind of marmite sweet taste. So we kind of figured we'd made Viking marmite. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so that was just an experiment we did. And uh, I thought I'd just update you yeah. and let you know where, how we'd got on with it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I guess the sort of exchange of uh, way to finish product produce is sort of telling. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of wastage. Yes. Yeah. Well, as you said, you can use it for better things, for preserving or something else, or bulking out breads, or even just drinking. I guess it's yeah, exactly. uh, a safe liquid to drink. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, unless you lactose intolerant, that's mm. how I find out. Ah, <laughs> that's not very helpful. <laughs> Right, so I know you've got only about five minutes left, right? Yeah, so we well, want to we want to speed it. to ten minutes. It's uh, oh, okay. Because I've got like the set questions I wanted to get through. Yeah. No, um, but I wondered if you wanted to really quickly mention the event that you've got coming up, oh, which yeah. is why you're so busy. Yes. Just to um, give yourself uh, a plug. Yes. So uh in a month from now about month from now is the large fest medieval festival in visby middeltidsveckan it's uh, the largest scandinavian medieval festival it's uh, a full week in visby which is medieval town uh, with uh, sort of remaining walls etc and it will yeah. be it's a huge event it usually has about 100,000 visitors so it's involved the whole town and this year mm. they have a food and drink theme so I'm doing, uh, so we're setting up this site where I'm going to be doing like five or six different uh, workshops and uh, some other friends are doing lectures, workshops, and are trying to pull things together. So that's... Yeah, yeah. I've seen you've got some pretty good names involved as well, haven't you? Yeah. Yes. So yeah. I was doing, 
three week, uh, three medieval, uh, three Viking workshops, uh, two yeah. in English and Swedish, uh, sausage making and everyday food. And then I will do vegetarian medieval food and uh, 16th century food as well. So that would a be nice my... big range of. Yes, it's a big range. Yeah. I need to start yeah. to uh, sort of do some uh, preparation, uh, preparations and try out some of the recipes I will do. And oh, yes, we have another course, me and Hannah Thunberg, with my co-writer. Yeah. So making a workshop on medieval taste and the sort of the idea of taste in the medieval period compared to today and do uh, medieval cooking in a modern kitchen as well. So it will be five lecture workshops with uh, historical context cooking and one in modern context, but medieval dishes. Yeah. So we will, fun. yes, and uh, we I will send you the link to uh, we made a Facebook group where we will post all the lectures and workshops and the oh you got the link already so perhaps you can share it yeah I'm actually I've I've been added to the group so what I'll do is when I pop this out to the public I'll put it underneath so if anyone's interested they can yeah. click on the link and go to the Facebook page do do so and yeah. uh, share the BBC video as well because it was interesting even as though I. It made me look into it's a bit like a sort of a, a creature from some fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it was a good video. An interesting uh, recipe as well. Is that one? Are, are you planning another cookbook? Is that part of that, or is uh, that just... either that or an update? We're not really, but it's sort of uh, something I do for workshops now. So we will see what's happening with the new dishes. I think I have, I have almost enough to make another cookbook, but that's then it's to make the context. So my current project is working on doing the Danish medieval cookbook into English and give it okay. a, a context uh, chapter like the, the Viking cookbook. So this is my yeah. current project and that will be hopefully finished soon. As you've mentioned it, I do have it here, yep. have my copy. So if anyone hasn't seen it before, an early meal, it's definitely worth picking up. I've yep. had it for a couple of years, I think. Uh, yeah. So it should be available on Amazon and other places. Yeah. So, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So we'll we'll just do the very quick yes. run through those last questions. Good. So these are these are just for fun. So um, the first one is: if you had an unlimited budget, what would be your dream project? Ooh, I, that's that's a difficult one actually. But I I would, of course, I would like to sort of. Oh, well, no, actually, yes, I would like to build a proper medieval kitchen to have yeah. uh, access to, uh, yeah. sort of in-house in with everything. Uh, of course, I would like to have it in a Viking kitchen as well, but that's, I mean, that's uh, easier to get hold of in a way. It's uh, yeah. it's easier to, but to have a proper medieval kitchen with an oven, with the hearth, that's, yeah. Would that be for your own personal use, or would you you want to have people well, coming in to learn cooking? Or uh, yes, well, actually, yes. If, if yeah. you're talking about a limited budget, then yes, it would be for my own personal use. But yes, I would probably use <laughs> that, uh, uh, if I had the yeah. space and I have the money. Yeah, I would like yeah. to build something that way. I could have a Viking age and a medieval kitchen and Renaissance kitchen and have a workshop there, and, uh, and not just going places and have something in my own. Yeah. Backyard, so awesome. that would yeah. Be good. All right. So the next question is 
And I, I reckon I can guess the answer to this. Do you think you could survive on a Viking Age diet? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not the problem, I think. It's, you uh, kind of do already. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, well, yeah. not really, but yes, I, I, <laughs> I, I do. That's, yeah. uh, that's, I can uh, make enough to have even a variation. Although yeah. I think uh, I think I could also live off the sort of. This is something we didn't talk about, but I think food would have been more repetitive than we do today. Yeah. Also, again, yeah, yeah. again, about uh, standards today and historical standards. Yeah. So, but I, yes, uh, I could have savory porridges a few days in a week and thrive on that. Yeah. Well, as you said, there's stuff we haven't covered. So if we ever get the chance and we're in the same place at the same time, we'll have to try and do one in person because yeah. they're a lot lot easier, I find, than doing a Zoom. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the last question from that group um, is, is there anything you'd miss on a Viking Age diet? Uh, yeah, of course. I'm. Uh, I have a, a huge sweet tooth, so yeah. I I would uh, really lack uh, cookies, uh, cakes, pastries, uh, and well, other sort of indulgences like uh, yeah, yeah, sodas. So you have yes, of course, there would be things I would be missing. T- mm. Tea as well. Uh, yeah, uh, good tea. Yes, yeah, so there are things I would be missing. Yeah. Brilliant. And also, well, yeah, spices as well. Uh, the of course. Spice. Yes, I, I like them. So, yeah, I wouldn't miss them. Yeah. What's the worst food you've ever eaten? Oh, I need to think about that. Uh, you mean, is this just in historical context or in any context? No, it could be in, in your lifetime. What's the worst in food my, you've ever eaten? Like it would be, it would probably have to be. Uh, liver stew served in the school. Uh, in the school, a liver uh, stew. Oh, liver stew That's served. An interesting one. Yeah, liver stew and served in the school context. So it's uh, the school uh, feeding. Uh, <laughs> That's an essential part. <laughs> it is an essential part. Yes. Yeah. That and oh, yeah. yeah, there were some other things that sort of of similar uh, degrees. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, when we had mandatory military service so the food i was served in field uh by the sort of uh, not so trained chefs it was sort of uh, yeah. also quite awful sort of uh, potatoes with some brown sauce and unidentified meat served in a plastic bag oh <laughs> yeah. nice so yeah hmm. um next question is what's the most memorable meal you've ever had Ooh. That would uh, be, well, this would be two different as well. I have one from a sort of regular context and one from a medieval context. Okay. So the regular one would be uh, when I was a PhD student, I went to France for a PhD class in food history. And they invited us all out to a Michelin uh, restaurant in Tour, which was amazing. Um, So that was taste-wise amazing. Mm. Then I went, uh, well, that's supposed to be 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a friend of mine uh, who's a chef at a medieval restaurant in Stockholm uh, raised for a, a sort of super feast for uh, reenactors, which mm. was sort of a 10-course uh, dinner with uh, lots of uh, food being, uh, say, uh, you made food for the eyes as well. So it was uh, 
sugar trees and the uh, sageable edible castle and yeah. so that was uh, visually one of the most impressive meals i had nice yeah okay so the last question Hoy, is you've died your family and friends are preparing your grave goods what food and drink do you get to take to feast in valhalla oh <laughs> <laughs> So the, the oh that, that's a difficult one because should I base it on what I'm eating or should <laughs> I base it on uh, what I would say would be a proper meal for for the funeral and the travel because if oh, we were going yeah. if you're going for this sort of serious answer what would you mm. serve at a funeral I would say something along lines with you would have fried breads, definitely. That's what you find in the various in Birka. And yeah. you would have, uh, yes, I, I would say if you were prominent enough and if you were uh, to have a good afterlife, I would say mm. a horse stew would be, uh, would be accompanied by horse stew. That's something I've yet to try. Yeah, you should do it. Yeah. It is really good. I am soon, actually. I'm uh, heading to Reeb in Denmark. Yes. Um, next month, and I'm going to be doing a video with uh, Viking Viking Clan Zebits. Yes, reenactment group, and they've offered to cook me horse. So yeah. I think they might be doing one of the recipes from your book. In fact, it was mentioned. Yeah, right. Because it's yeah, yeah horse meat actually was uh, in France during the eighteenth, uh, nineteenth century. After sort of you had a surplus of uh, horses after the wars, and uh, it was promoted as food. And they did some. Mm. They did studies on uh, what it was useful for, what was better and worse. And it con they concluded that for making stews and uh, soups, horse meat was uh, better than uh, beef. So That's yeah, yeah. yeah. it's really good. But yeah, then comes mm. the general question again. And what would I serve if it should represent me? Yeah, it would probably be. Probably be more like a hobbit uh, feast. I mean, it would be pastries. It would be. Uh, you would have sweet uh, things, sweet pastries. You would have probably have pies. You would have uh, beer, definitely. Coca Cola, which I am addicted to. Uh, and uh, yes, generally quite uh, good uh, fatty food. Well, one of my favorites is medieval recipe. It's uh, armored turnips. So it's uh, turnips cooked with uh, butter and cheese in layers with and spices. And it's really yeah. a great dish. I'll have to try that one. I, I grow turnips and it often comes up as what we're going to do with them now. <laughs> yeah, all right. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so that could work. yeah. If, if you have a chance to get to these, you know, now I'm going to use it in two of my workshops, I'm going to use turnips. <laughs> Because of my road trip, so I'm doing a road trip up to Midgard block. Yes. So I'm already going to be, I'm, I am heading through Sweden, but only along the coast up into. Yeah, up so into you, should, you should do a detour to Visby because that would <laughs> be worth it. It's, it's, and it's, I mean, it's the week before, so you will get in, just in time to Midgard Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Um, it's you been me? excellent to have you. Um, I'll pop some links under the video to your you know, Facebook and the, the group for your event that's coming up. Um, and I'll see if I can pop a link to the book on Amazon or something as well yeah, for anyone that, that needs to get it. 
yeah, so thank you everyone for watching and I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more, remember to like and subscribe and give the show a rating. You can also help keep the show going by becoming a Patreon where you'll get early access to all episodes. Or check out my range of merch on my store. Links are in the episode description. Thanks for listening. Hey. <laughs>